is the beginning of the show where I whisper now because StreamYard likes to make me sound super loud. <laughs> Welcome to Casa Live, everyone. Uh, yeah, we're here. It's Saturday. We're going to do the darn thing. Uh, I saw a lot of people in chat already. Skip Murray, first one in, says, I'm ready. We're ready too, Skip. Uh, the Dolphinum is here. Welcome. Uh, Professor Milky is here. Mallory Gates, welcome. John Haymaker in chat. Adrian, Philip, Christy, Jeremy, everybody is here today. Welcome, you guys. Thanks for joining us for another uh, weekly CASA Live. We've got some uh, special guests that'll be joining us here very soon. We've got some legislation to talk about at the end of the hour. Alex, what do we have for legislation this week? We have on deck uh, kind of the same old, same old at this point, Colorado, Hawaii, and Rhode Island. Ooh, all good news, right? Sure. Sure. <laughs> all good news. Well, I'll wait for Kristen to get back from her midstream jog. Oh, I'm, un okay. I'm unplugged. I had to plug my computer in because somehow I became unplugged and I was running out of power on my laptop. There's been this Sorry. ongoing joke about this corn song in my house this week that's called Coming Undone. And like we've been just been walking around like randomly singing this one line. And you just you were like, I'm, I'm undone here. And I don't know. That's just really funny to me in a weird, in a weird way. Anyways, we'll move on from this. We're going to get our special guests in here in just a moment. But really quick, I'm dying to know. Hey, how are you, Kristen? How are you this week? Good. I think everything's been Good. good. Nothing Good. unusual. My my oldest son finally got COVID, but he's fine. Um, you you sound almost relieved. You're like, finally, he got well, COVID. Well, you know, it's like he's got it. It's mild. He should be good. You know, he's 32. He's healthy in general and all that. I mean, in Chicago, how are you not going to get it, right? I mean, right. but yeah. he was the last family member to get it. So it's like, and he's fine. It's It's mild, it seems like, and he's getting over it. So then I can kind of like, he's got, he was like double- boosted and all that kind of stuff so it should be pretty wild but other than that nothing uh nothing too exciting this week well i uh i hope it isn't uh severe in any way and i hope he he gets through it really quickly yeah for sure knock on wood over here i'm i'm boosted to the max and i haven't gotten it yet and i'm still kind of waiting for like my own finally moment <laughs> you know so i feel you there alex hey how are you sir good it's finally springtime up here yes and uh, we went to a new bar in town last night, Ooh. and I met a gentleman who was very curious about what I do for a living. And um, also, also the, uh, the, the same gentleman is opening an Indian restaurant here in town. So we're going to have a little bit more flavor, which is great. Cool. So, yeah. All in all, last night was a success. Adults don't like flavor. Alex, we all know this. You're not going to go to that restaurant for flavor. I'm going to eat the shit out of that menu. <laughs> you know, right that, telling him what you do makes me think. I'm really quick, sorry, but the telling him what you what you do for a living makes me think of what goes around social media sometimes. Say what you do for a living, but say it in a really messed up way of describing yeah. what you do. Tell me what you do without telling me what you do. But in yeah. a really no, they said specifically like in a messed up way, like you know. Oh yeah. I just tell it's people funny. I play in the dirt because that's basically what I do. Yeah. More or less. That's the that's the roundabout way of it. But anyways, yeah, all well here. It's spring. Finally, I've just been super crazy busy. And that's my hey, how are you? For anybody who's been trying to reach me this week, I've just been working. That's it. It's spring. It's go time for me and for the company I work for. And 
busy stuff. But anyway, without further ado, I know people aren't here for all of this. They're here for our guests. So we're going to get right into it. Is everybody ready? Are you guys ready? Alex got to say something, though. Alex has, oh, right. Alex has words, words I, before we start. I, ha I have words. And, I'm new here, uh, you guys. I'm sorry. So uh, the, the topic we are going to be talking about today, of course, is uh, prohibition and uh, Jacob Greer's article that uh, was made free to read this week. Um, and so I think it's appropriate to maybe set the table a little bit here with a, an introduction from Kassa, uh, which is that Kassa does not endorse or encourage people to break the law with regard to making, selling, or consuming nicotine. However, Considering the negative consequences of overbearing regulation and people's desire to avoid the disease and early death of smoking, we cannot condemn it. And with that having been said, let's talk about illicit trade. Sweet. Let's talk about illicit trade. And joining us this week to have this discussion about illicit trade trade we have mr <laughs> jacob greer back with us i think jacob is our first returning guest oh wow that's we, great oh, yeah yeah so right. welcome back we don't we don't need any more introduction for jacob oh. <laughs> Jacob, really quick for everybody here uh give everybody a real quick rundown of who you are and what you do yeah so i'm a freelance journalist in portland oregon i write for a bunch of websites uh, most prominently uh, lately at least reason magazine which is a libertarian magazine that hopefully a lot of you are already familiar with. Uh, had a big story in there uh, on the new issue, which I've actually got it right here because I just love this cover. It's called, uh, if we can see that, Save the Butts. Uh, this, was a, uh, this, this just worked out very fortuitously where uh, Elizabeth Nolan Brown, who's, who covers a lot of sex work issues in the same issue, has a great article on the trying to take sex off the internet. And uh, I had my same article on uh, tobacco so we realized this was an opportunity to put them both on the cover with this great tagline, which I love. Uh, yeah, also, save the butts. Yeah. And I've got a book that, of course, I have to plug. Uh, it came out in 2019. I know you guys have read it, The Rediscovery of Tobacco, all about the uh, history of tobacco regulation with the big case for harm reduction of vaping. Yeah, fantastic book. Thank you again for joining us this week. And we also have Amelia Howard on with us. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Welcome. First time guest on Casal Live. Yes, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Well, yeah, real quick, give us a rundown of who you are and what you do. Well, my name is Amelia. Um, I came into this space working on a PhD thesis on the history of vaping innovation. Um, and then just sort of fell into ac or advocacy. Um, and these days, I would sort of consider myself a like forever advocate. I'm a part-time consultant um, for law firms that work with independent e-liquid companies, like very part-time. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to go back to doing my PhD or to find another way to publish the, the research that I've been doing. Um, and so, yeah, actually, this is like my first kind of foray back into discussing vaping in a public forum for a little while. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited about it. And Prohibition <laughs> is a great topic. And Jacob's article was fabulous. So I'm just really glad to be here. Awesome. And we're and happy vape, to have you here. Right? Thank you. I do vape. And you vape. Of course I do. <laughs> yeah, Amelia asked us before the show if she could, if she could <laughs> vape on stream. Funny. And we were like, yes, but you have to do it obnoxiously loud and directly into the microphone. <laughs> Just because not only does everybody in everybody in chat loves vaping ASMR, but it is Alex's favorite sound in the world. 
So yeah, thank you both for being here. Thanks for joining us this week. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to hand the floor over to Alex uh, just because he worked tirelessly, tirelessly on this show. So I'm going to hand the floor to him and, uh, and you can kick, kick off this conversation, sir. By, by tirelessly, you mean casually. Um, yes. so, <laughs> which, you got around to which is par for the course for me. Um, but yeah, you know, a lot of this is, uh, the impetus for, for having this show now is obviously the, the, the article being published, um, for everyone to read. Um, but also I, some discussion that this has kicked off among, you know, proponents of tobacco control and, and people who are more in favor of tobacco harm reduction. Um, and so I, I think, um, you know, once again, I'm sort of back to this, this table setting and, you know, the, the first question is, are we actually using the word prohibition appropriately here? Um, because there has been some discussion. I, it seems that uh, depending on who you are, there may be a sliding scale of what prohibition means. Um, and so uh, maybe to kind of get into that, um, are we being hyperbolic here or is it appropriate for us to use this word? It seems very appropriate to me. I I mean, there's always degrees of prohibition, but um, and obviously, I mean, you can make the argument that we haven't pro prohibited everything, but if, whether you're talking about individual prohibitions on stuff and when you get into what's going on with nicotine policy, I think that that would be absolutely apt. And I think that, you know, when you get an in-depth look at it, like Jacob did in his article, like, well, what else would you call it really at this like? <laughs> They're prohibiting things. So, <laughs> I mean, it's a kind of prohibition, isn't it? Like, I, it's, that's a strange argument to me in some ways. Although I can. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. I think it's very strange when people try to deflect away from bans on whether it's menthol cigarettes or very low nicotine or uh, banning flavored vapes and, and saying that it's not a prohibition when it clearly is. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's just a rhetorical move because yeah. prohibition has such you know bad undertones to it. Um, instead, I would shift it and say that, you know, sometimes prohibitions can work. And like an example I gave recently is lawn darts. Like, I don't know if you remember these, but these were the uh, sharp pointy darts that you throw in your yard and um, it's a very unsafe toy and people died using these darts. Uh, and the government stepped in and, you know, forbid this product. And uh, but there, was no, there was no big illicit market for lawn darts after that, <laughs> right? There's not a huge demand for lawn darts that people are going to go underground and seek them out. Right. So we don't have tens it. of millions of lawn dart users actively seeking these products. Right. Yeah. There's not a guy in the park, you know, outside my apartment selling these from a trench coat. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and so, so I, I think the factor is, you know, how many people use these products and how robust is the demand for them? And, you know, when it comes to smoking and vaping, like here in the United States, we've got somewhere around 34 million smokers. I've heard estimates of around 10 million vapors. That's a whole lot of people. And as we know, uh, you know, nicotine is very hard to give up and, you know, depending on how you use it, uh, especially with smoking. And, you know, so uh, is this tension when people say in tobacco control that, you know, smoking is incredibly addictive and hard to give up, but also if we ban it, you know, there won't be any black markets for it. <laughs> That's a very naive view. Sure. Yeah. Obviously, when we ban things, they just cease to exist. The demand <laughs> goes away. Right. People stop using the products. The illicit market doesn't exist. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's usually how it goes. <laughs> well, yeah, it's so interesting. 
like I was uh, too far away from it, but I bought my husband um, a bottle from, I have a cottage in PEI and I bought an island in Canada and I bought him a bottle that was actually from um, where we live and where we both grew up in Kitchener, Waterloo. And we had a whiskey factory here um, and it had, it's antique and it had made its way to Prince Edward Island and Canada never had full on um, federal prohibition like they did in the United States, I believe. Um, but we certainly had areas of Canada where there, there were prohibition style laws and it was basically impossible to get liquor. Um, and the island I was on was not one of those places. However, um, the back of this bottle has a whole prescription on it. And so you had to have a doctor order you a bottle of booze at that time kind of thing in order to get it there. And so, yeah, were you allowed in some way to consume alcohol during that time in Canada? Of course you were. Um, was it a lot easier than in the States? Of course, but I would still sort of consider that like a prohibition era thing. Um, because if you don't have access to like the person that can get it for you or, um, or if you can't get it for yourself, like it was just hard for the average person to get. And I think at that time for me, that's the line that we can start to call things prohibition, whether it's good or bad. If there's a restriction on legally accessing a product, then you are prohibited from doing that. Yeah. When consumers can no longer go and and just buy these things mm -hmm. and it has to be through a prescription model or it's medicalized or something mm -hmm. like that. There's that's kind of, yeah, you, you do start to kind of veer into that realm of, of prohibition for sure. Absolutely. They seem to want to always say uh, they don't, we're not banning people from vaping. I mean, that's what they always seem to fall back on when they, when they pass these laws and stuff. And we're not, we're not banning possession. We're not banning people from vaping. But they they don't explain that they're banning everything people want to vape, so or just about everything that people want to vape. So I don't I don't understand wh where this disconnect is with that. Right, it becomes like a de facto prohibition. Yeah, we're not banning you can vape. We're just banning all the flavors, and we're only leaving you with you know two devices that they're one's not sold anymore. You know. <laughs> so. And I, and I I kind of see you know uh, Phil uh, Kirschberg dropped a, a Philip. Kirschberg dropped a note in here about someone preferring to use the term abolition, oh, um, Malone, and yeah. which which sort of you know reminded me you know one of the things that uh, I, I am sort of fixated on is the, the the there's this dissonance between the sort of fine print fine print stated policy goals of like campaign for tobacco free kids uh, or you know even CDC and I, I think this may be a universally accepted kind of definition of the end of the smoking epidemic where smoking prevalence is below 5%. So when you're talking to serious policy experts and researchers on the side of tobacco control, they're, I think, somewhat open about the fact that we're never going to get use down to zero. Uh, but the dissonance that I mentioned is those policy goals don't match the campaign slogans that we hear, which is tobacco-free generation, free, free, free of all of the, the ills of society. And so... Um, you know, it, it, it seems a bit like people are misled to believe that we're going to solve this smoking problem by getting rid of all tobacco, and yet the people promoting that message don't actually believe that. And, and I understand, you know, this is sort of, this is how we campaign to get things done. Um, but I, I guess if this is eventually going to be a question, um, I, I mean, 
shouldn't the, I'm trying to stay away from should, uh, but <laughs> you know, can we get to some sort of middle ground or, or better understanding for public, for the, you know, the public better understanding this issue? Uh, if, if we can moderate that tone, I mean, we're accused of being uber libertarian. We just want these things sold on every corner. And, and we fire back with saying, you want to reduce use down to zero. Is there not a way for us to come together and, and have a more sensible conversation about it? If we can step back for a second, I'd, I'd just like to, since you brought up the term abolition, uh, just think that we should push back on that a lot because I, I think it's actually very offensive. You know, because when you, when you say the word prohibition, you think of alcohol prohibition in the United States. And so that's why people in tobacco control want to move away from that because that's generally regarded as a policy disaster. Uh, but then they try to shift the terms to abolition. And what do we think of when we say abolition in the United States? Creepy, we think yeah. of the abolition of slavery. Slavery, yeah. And uh, one, I think <laughs> what, it, it shows how, much, how little regard they have for people who smoke or vape, uh, that, that they would make this comparison to you know, such a horrendous period in United States history. And it shows how they view smokers and vapors as just having no free will. Like they mm -hmm. essentially view them as being enslaved. Uh, so I think we should absolutely push back on that. And uh, I think it's a terrible analogy. Uh, and we should we should always you know, push and say, no, this is a prohibition and you are infringing on people's liberties to do with it what they will with their bodies. I mean, it all, like it, it's it's that kind of um, sort of carelessness and carefulness with language that I see a lot in tobacco control. I'm sure there's other sort of quasi movement academic fields that might do the same thing. But even like, I think he started to talk about that, con Pro Robert Proctor anyway, started to talk about that concept in depth in like his book, which is called The Golden Holocaust. And I also remember, okay, <laughs> you know, like, um, like I do think it's important that for, for like, ethical reasons and sensitivity reasons and political reasons and also just realistic reasons that yeah you don't frame people who use a drug as like you know just having no agency and being good slaves to tobacco is sort of what they that is their sort of idea of this and it really shows how out of touch they are with um the population they claim to be speaking for and protecting and also um, history, <laughs> um, and and it's it is it's a huge problem. And I actually hadn't thought about that specific term in that way. Um, yeah, he's all he writes like an article a year about abolition with with Ruth. But I'm pretty sure it's the same article. For those <laughs> listening, Jim McDonald uh, in the chat wrote Proctor co-wrote mm -hmm. the recent article with Ruth about abolition. Yeah. That's that's what um, Amelia was responding. I mean, Pro Proctor. I, I used to really like Proctor and I thought he had more of a radical sort of idea of this than when I read him more carefully now he does. Like he does seem like he's very enamored by um, certain heroes in tobacco control and has sort of adopted like their assumptions. And, and so then when this plays out around vaping or other kinds of nicotine, like I do think that Proctor is correct or anyone is correct in their analysis of just sort of the physical components of a cigarette and how dangerous the design of a cigarette makes cigarettes to people who use them. I think that's absolutely correct. And I do see a case for not necessarily through legislation, but I do see a case for, you know, moving towards safer products um, in future generations. But 
Yeah. Um. <laughs> Jim said he seems like a straight. Yeah, I'm just like. <laughs> I almost read it out loud because I do sort of. It does sound a bit crazy. Anyway. He seems to have veered in his uh his path then, his ideas. Yeah. I don't know if that's maybe just the polarity of this conversation where just to get back to what Alex said at first, where you're sort of framed as we're you're framed if you're pro vaping or even just pro you shouldn't be framed if you're pro something like freedom, like I've always considered myself pro freedom, that does not make me a libertarian. I'm of course very sympathetic to like to libertarian like principles and stuff but like the idea that you know valuing freedom and agency and the ability to make decisions on your own in in things that are risky or or somewhat risky or benign like that's not like to me that's always been a straw man article or article argument and then so encountering it it comes down to how do you counter Straw man, straw man arguments. And I have not been good at doing that. And I don't know really what the technique is, but I, I think that's a very intentional thing where they sort of frame, you know, there's the moderate liberal um, progressive tobacco people. And then like the libertarians who say this, and that's, I don't think that's a great um, accurate description of people that, pro harm reduction for tobacco users or pro tobacco even like it just yeah for sure a, a false I don't, but i don't know how to counter it <laughs> so. yeah, a, a, a false dichotomy with no appreciation for the nuances in between uh and and certainly uh, you know the appearance to, to most of us is that uh this is largely driven by people who want to control things they feel as though they are the puppet masters and, and have the best way for for us to live. Um, and, and really, it's just, you know, we actually do have agency and we do want to choose things that that make our lives better. Um, so, yeah. Um, I, I, as I mentioned, I casually put these notes together. So <laughs> kind of flipping around here and relying on things, uh, you know, moving along. But um, you know, we can't talk about prohibition without talking about underground markets or black markets or illicit trade, as I mentioned at the top. Uh, and so, you know, we certainly have recent research on, on the effects of flavor bans. Massachusetts, I think, probably the most well-known example. Um, but Australia is, is having its moment, uh, it seems now. This seems to be reaching a bit of a fever pitch. Um, and they, I, I saw some some quotes in here uh, on uh, uh, from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. It's their ABC. Um, there was an article: uh, illegal vape and tobacco trade booms across Queensland amid bureaucratic buck passing. And one of the things that I hadn't really thought about was uh, that that Ill sellers on the underground market. Uh, can use nicotine products to test uh, smuggling routes. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we, one of the things we talk about with, you know, there was an example, I believe from Massachusetts of, of someone who was arrested uh, is, is, is being sentenced to five years in prison. Uh, this person was selling 
uh, illicit drugs. Uh, I believe I don't know if there was illicit alcohol in there or untaxed alcohol uh, and uh, and flavored vapor products. Um, and so I, I you know, it, it's sort of the, the birds of a feather flock together, right? Where someone is selling one illegal product, certainly others are going to be sold as well. Um, and I, I'm, I'm sort of curious uh, between the two of you, Amelia, I know that you're, you're paying a lot of, you, well, I don't know if you're paying a lot of attention to the research now, but uh, in, 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 in your experience in, 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 in researching this, are we starting to see that more and more is i mean is there anybody even really looking at this about the crossover uh, of, of products within that illicit market i mean i actually haven't read besides um the, <laughs> there was some discourse um like a while ago i mean it's just sort of around i've always seen the connection with weed um, and with, um, yeah, cannabis products. Most of when I see stuff like that, it's not coming from researchers. I actually think that would be a fascinating, um, I mean, not even just for nicotine policy, but just in general, like the interest, like just seeing, you know, where drugs are coming from and how, um, how markets grow in absence of, um, of a legitimate one. But I mean, where I sort of see this, thought about and not necessarily thought through and um, talked about and not necessarily in a strong way is in um, like children's educator, teenager education programs or anti-drug groups where they really do sort of, I always, I actually always kind of assumed that it was more of a fabricated market in their mind. But I guess now that you do have real prohibitions on this stuff, somebody is going to bring it in from somewhere. Um, yeah, sorry, that's not really an answer to your question. Like the truth is, I don't, I don't really know if, um, if this is being looked at. It's um, slightly counterintuitive to me because um, oftentimes what happens is it will be some of the same characters, although maybe vaping has made it past a stage where the industry is simply too professionalized for people to go back into a gray market. And so for them, it's kind of a, like they either fight for it and they get it or or they'll exit completely. Um, but yeah, no, I, I haven't heard much about that. I don't know, Jacob, do you, have you, do you know more about this? Or? I, I haven't heard much on a formal level. Um, mm. I did talk for my article to uh, Richard Marianos. He's a really interesting guy. I believe he used to work for the ATF, uh, the Alcohol Tobacco Firearms Agency in the United States, and he now is uh, teaching at Georgetown. Uh, yeah, this is one of the things we talked about in our conversation is that, you know, especially with regard to cigarettes, uh, he, you know, he, he's talked mostly about just high tax rates in states like New York driving trade down to, uh, to Virginia, you know, where people just stock up on cigarettes in Virginia, bring them back up to New York. Yeah, and, he, and he's talked about how that's actually just becoming a more lucrative line for people who were previously doing drugs or are still doing drugs or doing, I should say selling, selling. maybe doing too. We don't know. <laughs> we, we don't, we don't want to assume. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they're, they're getting into the, it's just expanding their potential business line you know, to have this option now. And it, and that's just with taxes. So obviously it will, it will get worse if we go to like full prohibition. And I mean, you bring up a, a really important thing. We've talked about this quite a bit. I mean, New York is, is the sort of shining example of the failure of excessive taxation on these products. But 
one of the things that that proponents of high taxes on on cigarettes, for example, um, is uh, one of the things that they push back on is the sort of patchwork of tax regulation that we have, and that most illicit sales as a result of high taxation occur because of the differential between uh, neighboring states, uh, or not even really neighboring. Virginia's uh, 12 hours from here. Uh, so not really close. Well, it's a little close. I, I'm at the tippy top of New York. Um, <laughs> um, so I, you know, it, it, but even with all of that, I, I mean, what what confidence should people have that if the entire United States had a uniform New York State tax on cigarettes, that 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 would solve the problem? You know, I, I would say low confidence, and and the reason I say that is mostly the experience of uh, both Great Britain and Australia, who, who have attempted to institute you know, these policies, uh, both of which have the advantage of being island countries. <laughs> and, and in the case of UK, much smaller than the United States. And yet smuggling is still a huge issue there. Uh, so if we're in a much bigger country and also have uh, two land borders, <laughs> I think our odds of uh, controlling tobacco through just high taxes are pretty low. I also think, I, I think it was David Sweener that, who explained this to me is like, it's pretty well known that there's a bit of a, like a law, like the law of diminishing returns kicks in with taxes. Like when you first introduce a tax, it can reduce rates down. And I think there's sort of this, we'll just do what we've always done because it's always worked. And there's, you know, you can kind of be blind to it not working. And the thing is that, um, gray markets, black markets, illicit markets, informal markets, whatever you want to call them, are notoriously difficult to measure. So what we even know about these markets is probably a very conservative estimate of how much, you know, business is going on. I think Canada is a, a good look. I'm not sure how our tax compares to New York State, but it is quite high, Um and uh, people who smoke go to reserves to buy cigarettes. And that will always be there. I don't see how, I don't see a legislative mechanism that could impose the same restrictions onto reserve cigarettes um, that you can on cigarettes and convenience stores. And yeah, it does reduce rates, but then you get people who will always do it. And whenever there's a way to get it, um, you can. And so, yeah, like at, at a certain point, taxing just becomes completely unproductive. But I think that there's willingness to, there's so much faith in, in a lot of these policies. And there's so much um, romantic thinking about like, well, if we just try it and it's going to be different this time. And we, you know, and I think that really comes to the human element and the emotional element in any kind of a policy um, field like this one where, you know, you do have a public health problem. I mean, you do have people that sort of see themselves as heroes or champions of the people and you can be prone to making bad decisions and thinking it'll work out well because you have good intentions. Sure. And, and that this was, is, there, there this was is a, a, something that I see a lot because I, I live about 20 minutes uh, from a native reservation. And when I smoked, uh, that was where I went, you know, they were, $19 a carton compared to $10 a pack at the store. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and everyone that I know personally in this area, my friends, my coworkers, people that I know that still smoke, 
everyone goes out to the res. Nobody buys cigarettes here in the state. Nobody goes to the, the gas station to buy a pack of Marlboros. They all smoke, you know, cigarettes from the reservation. And so, uh, you know, when I'm at the store and I actually see somebody buying, you know, a product off the power wall, it tends to be a, you know, a, a can of dip or chew or even a, you know, jewel pods or something like that. A lot of people here aren't buying cigarettes off the mm-hmm. shelf at the store. They're just going out to the reservation and get them. And then if you just take that idea across state lines, whatever, I mean, that's one of the biggest reasons New York has such a, a high, you know, illicit market for cigarettes is because our taxation is is so high. It's, I don't know what it is now. It's like five something a pack or, or whatever it is here. In, it's in it's almost five. It's like four. I think it's. Four oh, ours five. is higher than that. Jeez. Yeah. And then I think in the city, it's, it's actually over five, right? In New York yeah, City. New York City has a minimum pack uh, price. I think the minimum price is $10. And then you yeah. get the local and, and state and federal tax on top of that. So it can be $15. Even easily. worse. Yeah. 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 So. yeah I, w- I would, I would note um, for anybody who travels through um, Southern Quebec, um, uh, we, we take a sort of a Southern route South of Montreal in order to get my fa- my father-in-law's house. And it's, it, it, it's right along the border or, or through, um, uh, first nations land, uh, a reservation there. And, uh, which I believe actually straddles the international border, um, which, uh, has, uh, as far as I know, was recommended to somebody, um, that, uh, if they needed to sell their product in Canada, that the, that the, the people on the reservation could get it there relatively easily. Um, but it's a really fascinating strip of just, it's all smoke shops. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it's kind of funny that, it, I mean, they all have, they've all appropriated uh, uh, intellectual property. There's Starbucks. Um, there's another uh, shop that uh, is clearly using like the NASCAR logo, um, but it's in Canada, right? So maybe they're out of reach and it's on First Nations land. Um, so it, it's really, I haven't stopped there for any, I don't smoke anymore, but, uh, it's always just a really fascinating thing that, that, you know, Quebec, of course, which has, I believe the most restrictive, uh, anti-smoking policies, anti-tobacco policies in all of Canada. Um, that, that contrast of, you know, that, that Southern route below Montreal and then going anywhere else in Quebec, you can't, you can't see the product. Uh, it, it's so strictly regulated and of course quebec has i believe the highest smoking prevalence in i was gonna say it surprises me that they have the the most and i I believe that now actually just seeing the way they've uh addressed vaping and i know that they've kind of done both but you know quebec is where i used to go when you couldn't smoke inside anywhere else and i was like you know an 18 year old Dick. as a, as a right? kid and you know you go to quebec to like be able to drink and smoke inside <laughs> like, you're too young to do both here so. i looked into it once and i looked at the various states that had the highest taxes and compared it to what their smoking rates were and it, it is undeniable that the states with the really high taxes do have low smoking rates compared to a lot of our states but what they don't talk about is that some of the states with the lowest taxes have very low smoking rates as well compared like Virginia, I think is one of those outliers. Um, is it Virginia? Yeah, I want to say Virginia. Um, and I think a lot of it has, if you look at the different states too, a lot of those states that also have had the high taxes also have the most wealth because you're looking at things like West Virginia or um, 
Tennessee or whatnot that have the lower taxes, they also don't have the same wealth that you see in California and New York and Chicago. And so that's going to affect the smoking rate. So whether or not the smoking rate was affected by the tax or education and such like that, which, which is what we saw was smoking dove the most dramatically right after that first Surgeon General's report was education. But wealth helps because if you're wealthy, you can, I'm going to take a vacation and learn and, and, and quit smoking. You know, let's, I'm going to go, I'm going to go get a massage instead of having a cigarette. I mean, there's certain privileges you have. And then the taxes also lead to things like people selling Lucy's and, and like with what Jacob's article started off with, with Eric Gardner, which is one of the things that I always point to when these people come out and say, oh, we're not doing anything against, this is all against businesses. None of this is against people. And they seem to forget that the people who buy these products that they're affecting the businesses with. And so I love that you told that story, Jacob, that that first line in your in your article. What, what, do you have any more thoughts on what the Eric Gardner situation? Well, yeah, I think anytime you expand the scope of police activity, this is the risky run. And so if we extend you know, bans to menthol cigarettes, then uh, or to flavored vapes, then that's going to become a matter of police enforcement. And, and that's one of the things that's frustrating to me is a lot of people in tobacco control, when they talk about this, say, no, it's like you said, it's just about, you know, affecting the tobacco companies or it's just about the retail shops uh, and we're not actually going to go after individuals. Uh, and I think they're just e extremely overconfident <laughs> in the idea that uh, that you'll be able to uh, control this trade just by, you know, affecting the current producers. Because, yes, Altria probably has too much to lose uh, to keep selling menthol cigarettes in the United States, mm -hmm. but smugg smugglers don't. Right. And, you know, individual small dealers don't and people who can buy cigarettes and buy a gallon of menthol flavoring don't have that much to lose. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I think the, this illicit trade will, will certainly come up and then they're going to have to face that trade off of do we enforce the law or do we allow this trade to happen? And if, if they enforce the law, then there's going to be more incidents like that and more people being arrested and more people going to prison. Or getting tased, and so just far, tased. maybe yeah, maybe so we just enforce the, the law with tasers. Maybe that. Yeah, we've only be... seen so far, we've only seen minority teenagers get affected by these laws, and, and and they seem to not be able to make the connection that by telling all their their little exaggerations and outright lies and all honesty to pass these regulations on businesses, they're misleading little towns and big towns and city councils into thinking this is this horrible product that you had to ban industry and do all this stuff to industry for. So now we, that means we need to have outdoor bans for vaping at parks, which then in turn ends up affecting normal everyday people who are using the products, not, not selling them. So they don't seem to see that connection between the stuff that you're saying in order to get your desired effect against industry does end up trickle down effect. You know, it's like a Reaganomics of vaping. I don't know what else to call it, but you know what I mean? So you end up with people getting tased because these city councils think that this is this horrible thing and, and it's this horrible addiction and all this horrible stuff because of all the crap that they said in order to get their, their flavor bans and their taxes and all that kind of stuff passed. There's also, I mean, just to, get back to Jacob's comment on um, the overconfidence in, in the idea of how much you can control. That was something that I sort of, if I can speak just slightly personally about just my experience with people in tobacco control, when I first started meeting people that work in this field, coming to it from a very different kind of university, like 
environment where you know sociologists don't try to control how people behave or what they use or whatever like we're more just interested in in like what people are doing and the meanings behind it and how that socially plays out and so to I they I found people who are relating to this sort of stuff in such an abstract way um and in such a like like the way that I might play a very complicated video game or like settlers or something where, you know, there's this sort of um, collection of activities you can take and this and that, but they, you know, I think it was a real shock to the system of, of this entire field to even have people that all of a sudden care about their work. Um, and, and I can say, I didn't care about their work when I smoked cigarettes. Um, oh, I because I was just kind of like, Ever, you know, and I'm already doing this in sort of this dumb, rebellious, young way. Um, so, like, I don't care. But at, with vaping, it's sort of like you you suddenly realize that there's this whole field of people who, um, you know, like are playing this sort of game, like they get to control things and try different things and they just don't see any human face to it. Or when they do, it's sort of this mixture of um, badly interpreted and badly collected statistics and and metrics and then this like fantasy image of like the pure victim or like the helpless smoker and the evil corporations and all of this kind of stuff i mean one of the things that's really bothered me for a long time too is this refusal to sort of differentiate on an empirical level or even just sort of like a political level, the difference between multinational corporations, no matter what the hell they make, and, you know, a shop owner. Um, and if you do want to get, like, even when you do sort of enforce this on industry, if we're talking about people that make money off of selling the product, um, I think one of the, the things that I'm not saying anybody necessarily in this chat or watching this show might think, but what does get forgotten when it's the vape shops that are going out to fight this and, and also sort of like the network effects that happens in terms of who speaks out and who gets to be spoken for and blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, the people that own smoke shops and um, convenience stores and stuff like that were like, I buy my vapes now because that's where I can get to. Like, those are, you know, new Canadians for me, or like, in, you know, th these are like just dinky little smoke shops that are suddenly like, you know, when during the jewel panic, these places were being raided by police for like, just for like a news story. Like, I don't even know if they were doing anything illegal at the time, but it's just when you open that door for enforcement, it is always targeted at the people that won't be in a position to make it a problem for the police and that's yeah. the problem the little guy basically yeah and there, there's an example of that that i mentioned in one of my recent articles that also happened in massachusetts uh it was a small town new bedford and apparently someone tipped off the police that menthol cigarettes were being sold in this small latin american clothing store and, oh, it, it, yeah. and if you look at the photo of the shop you know, not to make assumptions but it looks like a, a very small like not particularly well-off shop uh, and the police staked out the shop, waited to see somebody leaving with, with Newport cigarettes. And then they went in, they raided the shop, uh, they arrested the guy, and they, and they, they made it look like a drug bust. You know, they, they took a photo and posted, out, posted it online of you know, the cigarettes mm -hmm. and the alcohol that they had, because it seems like the guy might have been you know, selling Coronas and like small pours of rum <laughs> to his you know, customers as well. 
Uh, but yeah, they, they arrested him for it. And that's you know, the type of things we're going to see if, if this policy gets more widespread. And the irony is the taxes that they were losing probably didn't, from this little bit of sales, probably didn't even make an up the amount of tax dollars they spent of ours to do that whole stakeout and that whole thing. Right. Yeah, drug bust porn is just awful. Like fanning out your five $20 bills that you got out on the table, you know, the handful <laughs> yeah. of jewel pods and like the, the crumbs of weed of that like you got, you know, we're really cleaning the up the streets. We're really <laughs> making everybody in the community safe. We're doing it for the kids. But in reality, it doesn't matter, you know, how many you know, uh, you know, low level folks we bust on the street and throw in prison for for selling drugs. Like it doesn't matter how much of that we get off the street. It has zero effect on the trade, it has zero effect on the illicit market in terms of, uh, you know, quantity that that comes in, whatever it is. Even when you see these huge drug busts where they stack bricks, you know, they're building a wall of cannabis or whatever. It has no effect. And it's it's just I don't know. It's awful. And I, I just hate drug bus porn. I just hate the fanning of like $20 bills on a table. It just disgusts me. It's really, I don't it's know really if you awful. guys noticed that when they do these things now, a lot of times it'll be a tobacco shop or a convenience store that also sells vapor products. But the headline, it seems to say vape shop. Have you noticed that, <laughs> that they do that a lot now? It's like, it's almost like a concerted effort to like, malign vape shops. I've just been noticing this trend and I'll go in and look at it. And I'm like, that's not a vape shop that says tobacco store. And then, and vape is like written at the bottom of the sign. And the headline says vape shop rated or vape shop busted for this side of the other thing. It's like, you know, I started yeah, when I was doing media analysis on the jewel panic, I definitely saw that. And I saw a lot of things misrepresented as a vape shop, like bong shops in particular. Yeah. Um, and, um, part of me wants to kind of give the benefit of the doubt to local news, just not knowing what the hell they're talking about, um, or not necessarily knowing like, cause there is a difference between a tobacco shop and a vape shop. I don't think one is better or worse than the other, to be honest, but the, there's obviously like a difference. If you've been to like a legit vape shop, it is not like a tobacco shop at all. But I also just don't think that the people that are covering this necessarily know and that they might just be doing that because they think that's what it is. Well, it's just funny because you'll see the company. Tobacco, Joe's Tobacco. The picture right underneath the title says tobacco store and it says vape shop, you know, murder at a vape shop. Or I will, I will add just to, the, just to this conversation that with all of these policies, with all of these restrictions, with everything going on, there are a lot of businesses that are simply diversifying. Yeah. You know, there are vape shops that are moving into uh, into the, you know, more traditional tobacco product space. There are vape shops that have moved very heavily into the CBD, hemp and cannabis space as well. So that line yeah. between vape shop, tobacconist, uh, you know, glass shop, all of those things, that line is, those lines are getting really blurry. Mm -hmm. And that's a direct result of these policies and people simply diversifying to survive, to keep a business going, to feed their families, whatever the case may be. You know, I've talked to a, a number of shop owners 
who had to, you know, uh, couldn't get product anymore for whatever reason, through policy, whatever, and had to make decisions to start selling cannabis products, hemp products, glassware, things like that, just to keep the lights on. And so I, I, I will just, I guess, in defense of some reporters, maybe they don't know what to call it because those lines are getting really blurry. But the only fingers we can really point are at bad policies that force shop owners into having to diversify their portfolio and having to move into these other spaces. And then and then what do you call your shop? You know, Joe's vape shop is now Joe's vape slash hemp slash THC slash glass shop. And it's like, that's just too much to put on a sign. Yeah. Joe, Joe's alternative wares, you know, I don't know. I don't know what we call that. Jacob after, do you know if anything changed with the law after the Eric Garner incident with the Lucy sales? Did they keep that law? Is that still a, something that they're doing? And yeah, I mean, it was just driven by, t by taxes more than anything. So yeah, I don't think there's been any change. Yeah. yeah and you don't see any like social justice thing going on with that. Yeah, it's, <laughs> well, it's, you it's see a lot of social justice things going on with that, but it's not, <laughs> it just goes away. The connection, and I don't I, think we should be asking like black people or like, black lives matter to deal with this because this is not that issue. But what we should be asking is for the privileged people in tobacco control who we actually have an audience with um, at certain times to just think about what it is that they are doing and not make it so easy for them to, and I, I think that's also not very, it's not as effective, honestly, coming from, from white people, but like the, at, at a certain point, you know, I don't think these people have had to think about the consequences of their actions and the way that they've gone. And I think that they, I think a lot of them would read Jacob's article or a similar argument like that and say, that could never be us. And that's not what we want and that won't happen. Um, and I think that they shouldn't be allowed to think that because I think there's countless ex like examples from history of us doing things, thinking we're protecting, and especially like the rank and file thinks you're protecting. And you have, like, that's just the system you're in when really it causes harm. And I mean, Alex, you said you were trying to get away from saying should. And ultimately, I think what... The situation we're in is a should situation. It's a political situation. You know, there are questions of what's the best metric for finding out if prohibition works or something like that. But there's also just the question of, and I think with nicotine, this is quite pertinent, you know, when something is not causing a great deal of harm and when there isn't sort of, I mean, yeah, there were <laughs> prohibition with, you know, domestic violence, for example, which is also caused by things that are not alcohol, but it's certainly exacerbated when alcoholism is like part of that. But nobody, you know, nicotine doesn't lead to, doesn't in, like end up in violent behavior. It doesn't end up in, it's, it's, a, it's a fine drug on its own. Cigarettes are a problem, but when we make nicotine the problem and then use prohibition as a way to deal with it, why? Like, it's just not that dangerous. It's just not that dangerous. And I think well, that's a natural political question. Like, why yeah. is it okay to restrict the use of something by a person 
who is really not effective. You can't make a secondhand smoke argument for this. You can't make, or, okay. or like for a cigar bar or something like that. When everyone is just there, they're all doing the same thing. And there's really like, there's not even sort of the, the weakest argument. They don't have that available to them. And so that's where I'm just sort of, it gets very frustrating with people who are quote unquote pro harm reduction within the tobacco control field who still sort of favor um, using the law as the tool to deal with um, the health problems of smoking or the, the injustice of like the fact that, you know, the only people that still smoke cigarettes are largely poor and like all of that kind of stuff. Like, it's just, I think they need to be asked that should question. Yeah, I, I, you, you've inspired several questions here, <laughs> and one of the things I, I sort of had going into to some of those comments was, um, you know, uh, kind of dovetailing off of what you had said, Amelia, about kind of the numbers and the and the, the very almost ob objectifying way that people are looking at, or that that researchers in tobacco control are looking at uh, at the data. Um, you know, you have a, a really good quoting here, Jacob, from from Ethan Nadelman, uh, talking about how uh, it, it seems that both tobacco control and harm reduction proponents have just sort of become comfortable with working in, in an illicit or gray market. Um, and it's that that sort of uh, objectification of of us uh, in a way makes it easier to to maybe take or or, or maybe not quite torture, you have to torture the data in order to get to your, your conclusion. But one of the things that, one of the topics that came up in response to your article is this idea that alcohol prohibition was actually a good thing. Uh, and, you know, we, we've been talking a little bit about how it's, I mean, it's not impossible, but it's very difficult to get an accurate read on how much, you know, use prevalence or, uh, you know, sales of, of, of alcohol or in, in our case, what we're talking about now, it would be sales of, of vapor products. Um, and, and so, you know, are these folks actually torturing the data and, and trying to, to fit it to their narrative? Or is this really a, a, a call, a timely call to go back and reevaluate the alcohol prohibition and see whether or not there was this net benefit? I mean, I think there, it is good to reevaluate alcohol prohibition, but I think the thing that doesn't get brought up enough in, in discussions of that is that there was a better alternative at the time, mm -hmm. and that prohibition didn't last pretty much anywhere that tried it. You know, lots of countries, lots of states tried alcohol prohibition, and they all rolled it back in in pretty short order. And what actually lasted was more the Swedish model, and, and Sweden was right there from the beginning. Uh, to just regulate alcohol and make it, you know, somewhat less widely available and served a little bit more responsibly. Uh, and that's more or less what, you know, became, you know, more common, you know, post-prohibition when we had con control states created and, you know, different regulations put in place on, on drinking and when you can serve. Uh, so, so even if you want to rehabilitate prohibition a little bit, I think the, the argument that should always be on the table is that we could have saved a lot of, of these downsides if we just tried the smarter policy from the beginning. And yeah, I, I always wonder, I, you know, I'm, I'm someone who went through a 12 step program and uh, just sort of adding more to the, you know, the data is, is not complete. Um, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous was founded because 
people needed a safe place to go and address their issue with you know problematic drinking um, and and so when people talk about reporting uh, you know the, the consequences of, of prohibition or, or reporting um, uh, use or or the ill effects of, of excessive alcohol use um, how many people we, we saw this with the with the lung injury cases uh, it was it was stark for 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 those of us who understand that that people are going to uh, uh, not disclose their substance use for fear of, of persecution or prosecution uh, or both um, and and so it, it's yeah again I maybe I'm making a point here and not asking a question which is you know it's incredibly difficult to get an accurate read on these things because it was illegal. People were stigmatized and, and pushed to the margin of society. And so we don't really know that. I mean, even if you're just, again, torturing the data and looking at one metric, which would be use prevalence um, or even diseases. There's a study that was <clears throat> uh, linked in this Vox article talking about maybe we need to you know, reconsider our opinion about prohibition. Um, which I just shared in the chat that the article that Alex was talking about. Yeah, um, some good resources there. Um, you know that uh, 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 cases of, of cirrhosis went down during alcohol prohibition, and as Amelia noted, uh, instance incidents of, of, of domestic violence went down. Um, but there's doesn't seem to be uh, oh, violent crime also went down, and and you know there are a lot of things that we I think sort of intuitively look at and say, well, organized crime was flourishing and making tons of money off of this. States weren't collecting the tax revenue. There's a large, you know, net cost there, um, and of course, all of the, you know, violations of people's agency and civil liberties that go along with that. Um, you know, trying to quantify that seems like uh, that seems difficult to me, and 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 in being able to show the the the, the cost and benefit of of alcohol prohibition um, and expanding that. So, I mean, we know that the drug war is absolutely harmful. There's there's no upside there, uh, and <clears throat> that's not. That's not based on a comparison with alcohol prohibition. That's that's real world data. That's mass incarceration. It's the racism built into the policy. Uh, we know all of those things are bad and, and leading to negative outcomes. Um, but in a way, I mean, nicotine is a little bit different. And I'm sorry I'm meandering and just probably not keeping things coherent here. But one of the questions I, I had was about drug silos. Uh, and, you know, assuming that, just assuming, let's pretend for a moment that there were, that there was a net benefit of alcohol prohibition, um, you know, comparing drugs prohibition and alcohol pro prohibition, is there an argument to continue siloing off these different substances, or does it make more sense to treat all drugs under, a, you know, a very similar outside of manufacturing or product standards um, in, in a very similar regulation? Outs, outside of product and manufacturing standards? I mean, yeah, well, I mean like, obviously, you know, for each product, there are issues of quality, supply chain, you know, purity, and so on. Those are going to be different for different products. I mean, I, I think but, that, you know, in a, in the world that I would like to live in, um, you know, governments and government agencies would exist to make sure that products are safe, that there aren't um, malign incentives that um, whether that's like in in any market, like that 
like I'm pro-government, um, full disclosure, not a libertarian, not any, like, I, I think that regulation can be good when it is good. And I would like to know that um, anything I put into my body or on my skin or in my house is not going to, you know, poison me or give me a rash or fall on me or whatever, you know, aside from that, no, I don't, I don't think that, um, and, and this is again, more of a political argument. I don't, I don't know about policy effectiveness or whatnot, but I just don't think it's fundamentally fair to, you know, judge the kinds of drugs people use. I think if you can make everything, so in that extent, yeah. So technically, on the technical level, of course, we are going to need to treat these things differently because there's different, they're different. But on the, I don't see a reason why we need to be, say, harsher on one drug than another in terms of the legality and this and that. Like, as long as, you know, you can make it so that people can safely access it and whatever. No, I think, we, I don't know, this is my sort of rambly, incoherent way of saying that we like we should not pick and choose our drugs and there shouldn't be these silos and i think from a strategic point of view there shouldn't be but also you know the the system that was going against um illegal drugs illicit drugs recently is changing its orientation towards this one and they are going to merge and this and that like this is this is the thing like people when something becomes kind of ineffective they will move on to a new target and i i think that what i would like to see happen more is for people to have a conversation about how this is like other forms of drug use and prohibition but also be open to the fact that drugs that maybe we had heard a lot of like propaganda about or, um, you know, might not have a high opinion of how, like, I think that vapors uh, should think more about how they treat other drugs. Like, watch how you say things like, well, it's not like cocaine or heroin, as if those are the bad ones and this is the good ones. Because at the end of the day, you're talking about illicit drugs, you're talking about a poisoned market. And there is a lot of, there are ways to do those drugs safely. It's just there's not an opportunity to do them safely anymore. And, you know, that's where you get into kind of problems. And, and that's where the scary thing with us is. And I mean, the other thing, I know that this was a huge problem during alcohol business, but there's, or alcohol prohibition, but there's a poisoned drug supply then. And the very existence of a small one alone is enough for me to say that that didn't work because I just don't think it's ever okay to have a poison supply of something that doesn't have to be poison in the way that it is. But yeah, I mean, I think Jacob's point too, by the way, on prohibition working versus not working, the best metric to me is like fact. And the fact is they repealed it very early. It did, it objectively did not work. Like, it did not work. It's gone. A working policy stays. So how are you going to get it to stay? More enforcement, more violence, more whatever. So, you know, anyway. Yeah. In one point I've tried to bring up before, and I think I tried to put it in an article once and my editor spiked it, but I think it's still a good point, was that you know, talking about this issue of uh, poison or toxic supply, which you know, people who follow drug policy are familiar with, 
I think we should bring up that that's essentially what the government is doing when it bans vaping. Like if, if you ban vapor products, you are essentially poisoning the supply of nicotine by putting people onto combustible tobacco. And nobody thinks about it that way because smoking predates vaping, but that's essentially what you're doing is telling people who were getting a fairly safe source of nicotine that they now have to turn to something that's much more likely to kill them. Uh, and I think it's a parallel that doesn't get brought up very often. And for that, for that matter, people who, because the kids, I, I know the kids are a problem, but like, you know, kids try things. <laughs> and, and, and we're also saying by phasing this out, um, because that's ultimately what this can do to this new market, is that we would prefer that the next generation of nicotine users only have access to the most dangerous things. And, and that to me is just absolutely bonkers. And I don't, I mean, I don't see how anyone could accuse me of endorsing youth vaping by saying that like, just by not even accepting the fact that people, you know, are going to use a drug because it has benefits to them. And if you're just going, yeah, that's exactly what they're doing. Like they're poisoning the market. And that is, it's hard to, but it's again, hard to make that argument when you have a very well-funded and really like skills at certain areas of public relations like field that is kind of framing this another way and is very good at convincing the majority of people who do not use this specific drug right now because it has fallen out of vogue. It'll probably come back once it's like prohibited, but like convincing them that it's just, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really exist anyway right now. It's just mostly like an abstract threat to our children in the future, unless we quash it right now. Um, and cause you know, the people that vote, the people that have kind of control in this sort of scenario, the people that pay attention to these laws and maybe could get them to stop if they upset them, like they, they don't know people who smoke and yeah, or they don't know their kids smoke or whatever. Yeah. In that, in that vein a little bit, um, you know, there's this iron rule of prohibition uh, that, you know, the more restrictive the policies, the, the stronger the illicit substances get. And one of these, uh, it, this is, this may be a better question for, you know, Colin Mendelson or, or someone from Australia, but one of these articles um, from Australia said that uh, they had confiscated some illicit vapor products and tested them and they were coming back 6% and as high as 10% nicotine concentration. Um, I don't know about any of you, but <laughs> vaping 100 milligram nicotine is not necessarily pleasant. Uh, you don't, you don't, it's not an all day vape kind of thing. Um, so, uh, you know, really, I, I, my question is in, in, in y'all's travels, have, have you all, have you come across people who are, are selling or talking or demanding these very, very high nicotine concentration vapor products? Um, and as a, another angle to this, I think you mentioned this in your article, Jacob, was that, you know, synthetic nicotine was, was sort of that response to that's, that's part of the iron rule response to, uh, the, the FDA's horrible regulation of these products. Um, I mean, is it limited, is it going to be limited to synthetic nicotine or should we really be worried about people trying to promote very high nicotine content stuff? 
That's uh, beyond my range. I don't, I don't know what the market demand is like for, for very high concentration nicotine. I mean, just the way you, so this is something that's happened in Australia. They've to get allegedly, the, allegedly, part of me wonders, like, I don't know. Do you know what kind of device it was for starters? Cause what I could see happening is in a place where you cannot, like there was no, there's not even really a gray market there. They don't have vape shops or anything like that. And when you have people that are ordering um, nicotine in bulk from um, like other countries um, that would normally go into say like, you know, like DIY. it could be just bad mixing. And it's, it's very plausible to me that, that a kid could like F that up or that a, an adult could screw that up. They don't have the, an accurate enough scale or anything like this. I mean, I don't know how easy it would be to vape it. Um, I, I think Women. it would be an interesting <laughs> experiment to see like how uh, much can you vape of it this? It would keep you on your butt. Because I, I don't I, think it would I, be I, that dangerous because I think you'd throw up before. I, well, I, yeah, I titra- you- titration seems to be on the human side more than anything there. He yeah, uses I, I, uh, 55 milligrams, so. You know, yeah, I, I will tell you from, from personal experience, I, I will tell you from personal experience, first of all, I used to vape uh, anywhere from 35 to 50 milligrams per milliliter in a sub-ohm rebuildable tank. Uh, and I also spoke to someone who uh, uh, had, had disclosed or confessed that they themselves keep a bottle of, you know, unflavored, essentially 100 milligram nicotine base Mm-hmm. in their drawer and every now and then take a puff off of it uh and i decided to try that for myself and i will tell you and it works but it's not Does something it? i'm gonna puff on all day long no. uh, i certainly well, wouldn't. i like to be vaping like 78 percent of the time <laughs> and i couldn't do that if i was but yeah. i mean so, so a commenter just said like I, I think there's the other the other explanation here is that they um they bungled the test, which is also quite possible. So, um, or these but, are just stories of you know drug hysteria and things like but, that. But quite honestly, in a place where the only supply is concentrated bottles of nicotine that be, need to be diluted by the user, I do find it absolutely believable that users are um, are getting the the concentrations wrong if they're that high. I mean, yeah, maybe that is a person that just like occasionally puffs it. And if you can titrate it, I just, to me, I don't know the, I don't know the, um, like the vape that you take a puff of that makes you puke. Like there's obviously a level why? of that. Like, yeah, why? Gum, because gum can, you, you can get like pretty sick. Too much of it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Just but swallowing it though. With vaping, it usually isn't effective enough. In terms of deli- like, I I just don't know. I just yeah. I I can I can completely see also that it's just I've seen so many articles, news articles, and Jacob's probably seen this too, where people have um they don't know what they're looking at. You'll see pictures of like a bunch of cannabis stuff, and they'll say these jewel pods, and you're like, what? <laughs> you know, the people who are doing the raids and stuff. They it's the same thing as with the fentanyl thing, where you know, oh, you can die if you get one little touch of it you know mm-hmm. and or so they see something that's actually something for DIYing and they go oh my god they're vaping this you know yeah. they don't know what they're looking at because so many times lawmakers and people just have shown that they have no clue how any of this works by calling calling it oil or mm-hmm. saying smoking 
electronic smoking device or, you know, I've seen so many weird things that they think that there's tobacco in it. People just, they have no clue what they're legislating or what they're um, policing, you know? And I, I mean, I think it's not really a silver lining or anything. And I just like knock on wood because anything can happen at any point that can change things in a market. And we saw that with cannabis, like cannabis is like the safest drug in the world. And all of a sudden people start dying from it. Um, But at least with vaping, it it makes, if you have a super high nicotine vape, I just, um, there's a, there's a mechanism that, and it is in the delivery mechanism that would stop you from doing much damage to your body before that happens. But so I've seen like a comment from Michelle there where, you know, the, the response is to increase the level of the drug, you know, to like, to, yeah. Yeah. If I can only, like, if I have to spend $50 for like a pod, then yeah, I want that pod to be pretty high. Like maybe I will like use a bit, but it's just, that's sort of the problem. I don't think that that's going to cause vaping to be more, it'll be more dangerous if somebody like accidentally ingests it or like your pet or your child or something like that. But I think for the user, it's just going to be very unpleasant. Um, But again, you know, like what else do you do? Like I could see myself, I could certainly see like high nicotine starting to be a bit of a problem when nicotine is hard to get. Oh, Jim yeah. said something about that. Where did, where was that? Oh, Here. Jim said, uh, yes, yeah. Michelle. Oh, 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 hold on. This, this one, this one. Okay. Yeah. Jim says, Jim McDonald, uh, he's uh, one of our directors. He says, yes, a hundred milligram per milliliter DIY base is banned or taxed to death. We'll see some people buying pure, yeah. Like a thousand milligram nicotine from China. It's available. If you actually vape that, you might die. Okay, so there, Jim knows Jim knows the accidental vaping dying. Like I and I believe that. Yeah, if you put in, but it, that's I, I'm coming to that just as a user, coming to those kind of decisions on my own now with like we've got a flavor ban coming up and this crazy tax and all of this crap. And I've got some DIY nicotine downstairs, and it's just sort of you know, what do I do to sort of prepare for this? Would I mm-hmm. rather be like vaping something that's regulated and whatever? Do I want like a bottle of poison in my basement right now? Not exactly. But I also don't want to use cigarettes. So, and I like nicotine and I find nicotine helpful. So I'm going to do it in the way that's safe for me. Now, if we do that on a mass scale, if everybody that wants to use nicotine has to buy something that like you need to put gloves on and have like a special to the like whatever milligram scale in order to use it, are there going to be accidents and injuries and death and harm that you wouldn't otherwise have course you will like of course you will yeah i also liked in jacob's article where he talks about the fact that people use nicotine because they like it not just because they're addicted and that's that's one thing that's bugged me all the time is that you don't immediately become dependent on nicotine the first time you use it there's something that brings you back to it you're like oh kind of like hey i really like cigars or i really like cognac or i really like wine or any other drug too, you know, cocaine or cannabis, you know, some people like 
the the high of cocaine some people like the low of cannabis that you know that more mellow thing um i'm not really into either one of them i'm not a big drinker but i like my nicotine and i all i would go out drinking just so i could smoke more because i liked smoking i really did and and i was often i had three kids and i quit through all my pregnancies in nursing and still started again so clearly it wasn't just because the nicotine that i wanted that cigarette that hand mouth thing is big for me and so that I think that attitude of we're all just well like the whole slave term you know that we're all slaves to this, and they change how they prevent present us too you know kids are in danger of this lifetime of addiction we have to save them and they won't be able to control themselves and now we're adults and we use nicotine and you're just a dirty addict you know now you're just this you know all the empathy and sympathy disappears as soon as you're an adult. You know, so it's just this horrible addiction as, as if you're a kid and we have to save them in this lifetime of addiction. And then you're an adult and, you know, well, you know, just quit. Just quit. I just saw one in Massachusetts. He, you know, some guy said that. Just, you know, I'm sorry if we're taking away all of your products, but we have to save the children from this horrible addiction. And my message to adults is just quit. <laughs> you should just quit. And <laughs> I mean, the, the one thing that I sort of, gleaned from watching, listening, speaking to some of the people that have that, like, say, these people don't care about kids. They actually, like, really, there's, there is a bit, one of the things that really fascinated me during the whole, like, jewel thing and all this, and it was all of a sudden very focused on kids, was, we didn't care about kids, and, and what they did care about was kids that were acting out, um and i mean in this case it happened to be like at least at first a lot of rich kids and then the solution was to put a bunch of cops in schools of kids that weren't rich and make their lives suck and make their teachers lives suck but i mean that's that's the one thing that like every strip you don't have to um accept from these people tobacco free kids we don't have to accept from them they speak for children because you're a mother and because children are part of our community and because, you know, like these people don't speak for every kid. And, and some of like, some of their policies are actually ending up very shitty for kids right now. And, and I think, um, you know, I don't think it's necessarily a pro child policy to like, it's like when you had to save kids from rock and roll or when you had to save them from weed and, and in any of those situations, if you look back on it, what you see is actually, you know, a cultural struggle. It's often a cultural struggle between like older people and younger people and something younger people is doing is really getting under the skin of older people and they respond. But also like, just while I have the opportunity, I would like to say like, I think the first thing I read by Jacob, like it was so great to have a voice in this space talking on this issue. Um, and I don't know how much you knew about the product themselves at the time, but to um to have someone that understood the politics of it and also didn't dismiss um agency and um and just the fact that there is something people like about smoking or vaping or anything and i think that that's just a complete blind spot to mm -hmm. the other smart voices that speak on this and it, it's very hard to um, to even bring that back into the discourse without getting, you know, shit flung at you. 
um, and being accused of like ridiculous things, even though it's just sort of your experience. It's like, you know, or you've talked to someone, it's what you know. So that was really refreshing for me to sort of read something, somebody that was just sort of interested in looking at this objectively, but without sort of objectifying and projecting all this subjective weird, like, hoo-ha onto this, like, it was, that was, I'm glad you've stuck, stuck around. (laughs) (laughs) And protecting kids has turned into tasing them and strip searching them. Right. And which I think gets, again, (laughs) if you want to talk about like objective, subjective fact, um, emotion, this and that, if you're tasing a child, you cannot pretend to care about the child, (laughs) period. Like, for your own good yeah yeah i got uh i got to go pick my own switch as a kid for my own good you know (laughs) did did me a world of wonder i do want to say on the topic of prohibition the iron law of prohibition uh and i've said you know on this program and across the twitterverse whatever that when it comes to vaping when it comes to e-liquid there aren't very many incentives to reduce cost in a lot of ways, you know, PG, VG flavoring, these things are widely available. They cost almost nothing. Uh, you know, we saw with the introduction, uh, you know, during the lung injuries, uh, we, we saw vitamin E acetate being introduced to cut things. Uh, drugs are cut with all sorts of, of low cost, you know, supplies, whatever materials to reduce cost. We don't see that a lot with, with vaping because everything costs so little, but the further we, the, the more heavily we tax nicotine, um, you know, this conversation of high nicotine levels raises a lot of questions, I guess, with me as far as, you know, at what point will, you know, the market, the people decide like these products are not satisfying. They don't satisfy me. I instantly throw up. I can't use them. That's going to have a reflection on the supply uh, with any market typically that supply would adjust accordingly and, and bring those levels back down. So that way they continue to sell their products. Hopefully that's what happens if we do see nicotine go up through the roof. But a more recent concern that I, I didn't really acknowledge, I guess, before is, uh, and, and Jim kind of made a point of this. Uh, I don't know where his, his comment went, but uh, along the sweet spot of, you know, uh, or maybe it was Michelle who had made a a point to this either way. Um, with, with the, the flood of disposables that we're seeing come from China and other places, it's really the safety standards of these products that are starting to concern me and, and how cheaply and poorly they're made, the heating elements that are being used, the wicking materials that are being used, all of these things that we don't actually know much about right now. You know, the tried and true metals that we've used as heating elements or materials we've used as heating elements that have shown not to cause very much harm or the wicking materials that we use in high quality, you know, these products, that's going to the wayside. And we're starting to see a a whole mess of other things, you know, batteries that are just kind of openly connected inside these devices and there's no real uh, safety Put into them. It's just a, you know, a, an inhale on off switch on a raw lipo shoved into a disposable. There's, you know, just some random foam in there that, you know, you know, what are these products being made out of it? And I guess that's where, you know, my concerns with this market going illicit was really focused on, 
you know, the, the social interactions of people, where people are going to buy these products, not having the safety net of buying them from a shop where there's cameras, there's, you know, enforcement, there's things that can be done if you're sold a bad product, whatever. Those go away immediately when you get onto the illicit market. When you get into somebody's backseat to buy drugs and then you get thrown out at 30 miles an hour, high speaking from experience, you don't have much safety net there. You don't really have anybody to go to. When am I going to go to the cops? Hey, my drug deal went bad. Can you help me? Like that doesn't work. So I think when also, we're moving into like, this is this is kind of where my concerns are shifting. Like I still have a lot of concern about that, how and where people are going to buy their products. But now my concerns really are like we don't know how safe some of these things are and the quality control. None of that's there. No, you know, what what are your guys' concerns? Is is that a is that a concern for you? Guys? Jim has a question for you too. Like I didn't vape in 2009, um, but I spent a lot of time reading everything. Everyone who was vaping in 2009, 2010, 2008 wrote to each other. And, and those were the concerns, whether or not they were warranted at the time. Um, those were a lot, like people were concerned, especially at the very beginning. Like, what is this that I am, that I am using? And, um, and I think by accident in some way of like history and technology, it turned out that it was kind of safe. And I think we're kind of going back to that time where there's uncertainty. So Jim's question, um, which like, I think that I don't have the answer, maybe Logan does, it was asked to him anyway, but just the idea of like, do we have evidence that there's like massive unsafe, safe products out there? Yeah. And I would agree with Jim here. Like we don't, there's, it, it will keep vaping widely available. The problem that we have, though, is that, like, if there is an unknown or if there is something, and this isn't really, like, it's not a, like, this is more just, like, just within family. It's something vaping should think about is the fact that, you know, this was a much smaller thing when it started out. And there was a very strong online community started by somebody who was a vapor or multiple online communities started by people who were vapors on separate platforms that were not policed by, you know, morals and norms and like public crises about like letting too many Nazis on and like whatever. So they were able to talk this shit out and, and have a safe market by virtue of having consumers sort of police the great dealer, like all of this kind of stuff. And now we're going back to that time but this has grown enough that people are not going to go back onto like ECF and stuff like that. Like it's just not going to happen. Sure. I, I guess when my point and, is, and to, yeah. to answer Jim, I guess you know, where I've seen it, I, I don't have really evidence, but I've seen recent, you know, teardowns of some of the, the, you know, uh, extremely cheap disposables that are being produced overseas and that are coming over here. And it kind of reminds me of like, you know, the days of blue aquarium foam, there's yeah. a reason we moved past blue aquarium foam, Jim, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, there's concerns there. There's better quality materials uh, that, that we know are not going to add on any additional health risks, albeit they're probably low to begin with. But why add on additional health concerns to products when we could simply regulate that? You know what I mean? Like, I guess. I, I just do have concerns with how low a quality some of these products are going to get and how mm -hmm. dangerous they may become the further that we move down this line. Right now, widely available illicit disposables or whatever that are on the market 
sure, maybe they're fine, but is there going to come a point where we go, how cheap can we really make these? Well, and, and how what, do we respond you know, as people that have been that? seeking for vaping? How do we respond to that possibility? Because it can't just be, and we're all worried about it too, because we're users, right? But I think that, you know, as if it continues to move towards prohibition in the way that it's doing, um, I think obviously you have to sort of fight that and you have to do the sort of legislative thing. But I think groups like PISA will have to continue to focus and perhaps emphasize even more. And I don't know how you'll do it because you don't have a lot of funding and you don't have a lot of people and I'm not. But I think that the vaping community in general, like we are going to have to also find ways to make sure that information can get out to new users and to people like of how to do a thing safely that and I think we all sort of take it for granted back with the blue aquarium foam and stuff that we didn't end up keep doing somewhat dumb things <laughs> that, that, that people might have thought was okay at the time but we're like kind of moving back to that stage but we've got more of like a, a hornet's nest of like like you it's like you can't just talk to one audience anymore. And so how how do we make sure that this is safe even when it's illicit as we fight for it not to be? And I do think that's a legitimate concern. I, I don't like the black market argument being used as a scare ta tactic because I do think at the end of the day, like there aren't those dangers don't exist right now here. And I think it kind of allows the enemy or like the people trying, to, like it, it can empower them to be like look at how scary look at how much scarier this is than we actually even thought but at the same time the market you don't want it to turn into a market where like consumers need to control what they see like it how do you can keep this so there's not too much uncertainty and so there's no differentiation between safe and dangerous and like i just don't want people to to die. And again, like I do think back to the vitamin E acetate, and I know that that doesn't work with vaping products, but in theory, there could be something that does that has a similar thing. And, and it could be quite innocent how it gets in there and it could do damage. And I, that's where it scares me that a lot of vaping conversations sort of happen on forums like Facebook, like the private ones or the, the in-group ones, Facebook, Reddit, places that can ban like that whole group and then you lose all this knowledge so i just sort of wonder if this goes back to like and you build your own coils and you're making your own e-liquid and you're finding your own wicks like where is the resource for people so they know that they can't just put the blue effect aquarium foam in there or like you know fiberglass or whatever well, the we've hell gotta, we've we're gonna keep do. In mind, i know what you're saying but we've got to keep in mind that for for years <clears throat> excuse me before the FDA even got involved, we were finding things out and doing research and we had gotten a pretty safe product figured out mm -hmm. before FDA even got involved by, yeah, you had things like blue foam and things like that. But, you know, it, ironically, people were seriously looking into what the stuff was made of, what happens when it gets to a certain temperature. I mean, people were researching yeah. stuff before they used it. So it's not like they were just randomly throwing. I mean, so I'm sure some people were. But by the time FDA got involved, we had a pretty good product that was pretty darn safe. I mean, they had already discovered 
diacetyl, diacetyl, however people say it, um, you know, the popcorn lung stuff. They'd already figured it out, pretty much self-regulated most of it out of the products. I mean, so this idea that the black market was so much worse, yeah, it is. It is a, a false kind of flag, whatever you want to call it, because we had a, a nobody died vaping in those years before FDA got involved. And that was something I was thinking, too, when you were saying earlier about how food, you know, how you want your no, you want regulation because you want to know your, you know, that your food is is safe and your medicines are safe and your stuff you put in your skin is safe. And I, I kind of chuckled to myself because I thought FDA doesn't work that way. FDA, oh, yeah. goes, I don't have the FDA. <laughs> like, I'm just saying, but I'm just saying that they, 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 you know, FDA and most of these regulatory, we've seen how they work. Basically, it's yeah, go ahead, do what you're gonna do. You kind of gave us a a three week study, and now go ahead and sell whatever, and then something happens, then we'll address it. And that's pretty much what they do, and that's what they should be doing with vaping. If nobody's really getting hurt, why can't they say, okay, we know what's in it. We don't want you to put like diacetyl in it because we don't like that. Don't put vitamin E acetate in it because we've already discovered that, but go out and sell it and let's see what happens. And then, because that's what they do with everything else. But with vaping, it's got to be a hundred percent safe, even though we had this market for almost like a decade almost before FDA got involved that nobody got hurt from vaping. I mean, my only like comment on that would be that just the genesis of vaping is that most of the products used in the technology were reappropriated from something else and were already highly regulated downstream, like propylene glycol, extremely regulated product, um, not expensive, not like whatever, even nicotine, like it, you just happen to find like flavorants, they're not that regular, but they are, right? Like it was stuff that was already available to consumers, whether it was marketed to consumers is another question, but it was very downstream. Like we're not doing anything, like we're repurposing batteries and flashlights or this or that. And so, you know, my my main concern just with bringing that up again, because I do think that is the key is no one did, like it worked out quite well. But I think one of the reasons it worked out quite well is there was a smaller community of people working on a problem together and solving it and making sure and then and that this wonderful wealth of knowledge and science was like left behind in the traces because of the way it was done. It was done online and the platforms that people go to now to do that do not have that same kind of archiving effect. And what does worry me is that if this goes completely underground, that that knowledge becomes lost and we get less control over the market as we did before when it was still a gray market, but there were fewer of us, manufacturers were listening to us um, and it becomes quite, I don't think it's, it's never a situation where um, a person who sells drugs or a company who sells drugs or like drug sellers want to kill their customers or anything like that, but it becomes much harder to sort of informally keep things safe in the absence of regulation. So I actually agree 100% with you, Kristen, that like, yeah, why can't you just let it happen and let it happen safely and nobody, and I think that would be the best thing to do. But what I do worry about is with this generation of people who have now started on things like what I'm using, which is just like, an, it's just so idiot proof. And then you have to kind of go back to a foreign thing and, um, you know, where are the resources going to be if, like, they continue to crack down on things like vaping groups on Facebook? Like, I know kids aren't going to go to Facebook, but, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, where is the network to make sure 
that as you do this, you don't do something by accident that's dumb and that that dumb thing doesn't grow into a thing but that becomes normal. Already what, yeah, I see what you're saying, but what we saw already is what happens with that. Look what happened with cannabis vapes and vitamin E acetate. Yes, some people got hurt and stuff like that, but the system worked there. They traced it down, they figured it out, and now they don't, don't allow that in the vapes. So why can't they do the same thing with these nicotine vapes? Like you said, it's already based on everything they're already familiar with. And they've had, they've got all these decades of very few, if any, I mean, there's been not a single death from vaping from, you know, as, as opposed to smoking, if you use it as directed or how intended it, it could kill you. Whereas with vaping people using it as directed as intended and in, you know, the poisonings we've had have been kids drinking, you know, DIY liquids and stuff like that, or batteries being exploded that weren't charged properly or the wrong batteries. There, there's going to be nothing's hundred percent safe, but the, the, the same, do the same thing. They already know everything that's in these, just like with food, we've got a ton of familiarity with it. So you put it on the market because you've got over a decade of proof of concept basically right now. So just approve them and then let them, then if something comes up, something comes up and you do like you did with the, with because the, they don't want you to vape. I want to jump in and, and try to kind of attempt to answer, yeah. answer your question a little bit, Kristen, uh, you, you brought something. I mean, people have talked about this. I know Clive Bates has brought this up. Other friendly experts in the field have brought it up that the appropriate way to go about this is, is to allow it on the market and take action. If something comes to, to the surface and we need, we need to, to, um, you know, clamp down here. <clears throat> I think Scott Gottlieb in a way it's as if he tried to check that box on his way out the door. Um, and it, this was, I think, some of his uh, interview on the, the New York Times piece about Jewel, the, the Sheila Kaplan's greatest hits. Um, it, it was that, you know, they came out with this 2017 guidance I don't, or, or, or their, you know, sort of re, rejiggering their mission a little bit to, to regulate nicotine instead of just thinking about tobacco. Um, and they felt that this was an appropriate way forward. And then within a year or so of, of, of making this statement or releasing this guidance, the youth thing went out of control. And it, one of the things that, that you bring up in the article, Jacob, was you know that the abstinence only mindset in the US has led to misinformation promoted by alarmist media coverage uh, and, and, and so on. I, I think you maybe went a little bit of different direction there, but in a way that they've sort of taken advantage of that. They have uh, constructed this weird, not quite reality where, well, we did do that. We did let the vapor companies go do their thing. And then the kids started using it. So we had to take action. It's not specific to any quality control That's issues, but more of that, that they, which I, they I, I, think really. is, I think is, is in, on par with misinformation and it's a false narrative. It's, it's because we've been trying to you know, really, I think, put the youth use numbers into context, but that's not, it's not getting out to the rest of the world. And, and you know, we are panicked by the campaigns and so on. Um, but that, that was my stab at that. And I don't know if Jacob, you have a different view on that or, or a different take or anyone. No, I think that was a, a good summary of how, <laughs> how things happened during that period. It's so crazy. And so much prohibition seems to be um, supported by the whole save the children thing and, and false narratives and blowing up the numbers and, and, um, just blatant. 
I mean, the only thing I can think of that I can compare tobacco control is flat earth believers. You know, they, they only see what they want to see and they completely dismiss any science that's put in front of them and say, but what about, but I feel, but it's only what I can see is what counts, you know, it, it just makes me crazy, crazy that these people are in power. And I love what you said before, Amelia, about, and I had never thought of that, about how these people in tobacco control weren't really on, under a microscope. Everybody just kind of trusted them and said, yeah, they're good people. They're doing, they're doing the Lord's work, basically, type of, to put it that way. And they, you're right. They aren't used to people suddenly going, wait, wait, you're doing what? You're saying what? You know, let me see the science a little bit closer. What, what do you mean seizures? What do you mean, you know, like the one that just came out of Australia was ridiculous. That, that whole report review of the science and it's definitive now that vaping is not better than smoking and that it's causing kids to smoke. And if you get down and read what they're reviewing, it's, it's ridiculous. You might want to look into that one, Jacob. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know about that. I'll check that out. I mean, just quickly, one of the things that I would like to say, I mean, coming into the space again, like from an academic position and learning the history of vaping and the vaping community and their encounter with the people that were resp responsible for studying smoking and, and dealing with smoking. There was a real sort of betrayal of, of trust and something like, I don't, I, I don't know that you can really pin it down in like an IRB regulation, but I, I would say like just a very unethical relation. And it was people who really sort of trusted as we're told to do is trusted the scientists. Now there's some question to me as to like whether that's the right term for some of these people, but you know, there was a genuine um, trust and belief. Um, and I, I think that was, that was taken advantage of. And, and I think really the field kind of has to own that even the ones who are friendly to this now. Um, and honestly, all of, all of, people like academia, people that get paid to, to be objective and to, to learn things and whatever. I think that's kind of on institutions as a whole. We have these departments where the norms are so wildly different from what we would consider to be good inquiry. And I, I think ultimately, like, that's one of the things that's kind of soured me on this, and I, I probably need to get past it. But I do think that it's just, I hate sort of seeing that the expertise associated with this and the expert field to a certain extent didn't know what they were talking about from the beginning and that the people that do um and did and and whatever that it kind of turned them against each other because i think that's one of the things that make i still love vaping because of it but made me want to study it was like i saw a whole field of people that were working on a problem and solving it in a way that was not any different than um, than great laboratories and whatever, but it was a bunch of users and and the science and the inquiry that went on to end up in what we have now is it's just so rare to see that in the making and and that that even happens and it just kind of sucks that that that's so discredited and that the people that really could have been wonderful collaborators had they been able to see this in a different way and had they had better incentives that those people ended up kind of taking this towards a different direction and that it's, you know, a bit of a shit show now. Sorry. <laughs> but... Well, with that, I think we 
kind of need to wrap this up. I'm, I am still going to do a very brief legislative rundown here, um, but I, I, I want to give our, our guests the, the last word. So if, if there's anything that, that we didn't cover or, or perhaps uh, needs a little bit more expanding on, um, uh, Jacob, I'll, I, since it's your article that we've been... <laughs> He's been kind of quiet. Yes. No, I think I think we covered a lot. You know, the um, and I'm potentially working on a, a new piece on this. But one one thing oh. I think we should we should start focusing on is just um, you know, not you know, we're used to talking about vaping and tobacco harm reduction purely through a public health lens. And I think in the next next year and uh, and beyond, as these more restrictive policies come into play, we need to start talking about it as a criminal justice issue too. And because in in part because one that's very true and it's it's a problem that we're going to face that the, the arrests and prosecutions are already happening uh, but also i think it just reaches a bigger audience uh you know the, as somebody mentioned earlier i think in the chat there just aren't a lot of papers uh statistically speaking and so you know it's hard to get attention for what we talk about uh, but criminal justice is a really important issue in the united states and people want to talk about it so if we can make these connections to the past failures of the drug war and prohibition and how we're headed down the same path right now uh, we might be able to get more sympathy for for what we're talking about. Excellent, Amelia. Anything to uh, to add there to yeah. piggyback off of? No, I mean I can't say it any better than Jacob has just said it. Then, and I got my little speech in earlier. I think that that's exactly right. Um, I mean the only the only thing I would add to that too is like, um, and I don't think Jacob's doing this, but also that's such important work. And when we engage in it. I think we need to be really thoughtful about how we engage in it and not do to any community that we're reaching out to, um, not assume too much, right? Like when you, when, as we move and make this bigger, um, we always need to be reminding ourselves to treat the people who we're going to try to ally with or who we want to learn about as we wish we might've been treated. And so really do, you know, we're, you're gonna, we're gonna start to get into territory that as like law abiding normal people or however we like to see ourselves, isn't gonna be comfortable for everybody that vapes. And, um, and it, we're gonna have to do some hard work of realizing how we're not so different from people that have been really othered to us in the way that you might've been experienced or experienced being othered to other people. And so just, you know, as we do this, like it's it's not just about, yeah, it, do, it does have to be about criminal justice, but I think a lot of us that are in vaping, we all have a lot of learning to do on that. and. It's and I think we can do it, but it's not going to be easy. And but it's really important, and and that's kind of where we're going to have to go. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we probably have less learning to do about it than uh, many people in tobacco control. Though. This is true. Um, <laughs> bar is set quite low. At this all right. Well, uh, before Alex gets into legislation, uh, definitely want to thank both of you so much for joining us uh, for this discussion this week. Excellent discussion. Excellent article, Jacob. Uh, love all the stuff you write from books to articles to quick reads about mocktails. I don't know how familiar everybody is with all of Jacob's writings, but that's some of my favorite stuff is, is I just love the idea of mocktails. I don't know why. Anyways, thank you guys again so much. If you'd like to stick around, 
you absolutely can. You can hang out while Alex goes through our legislative rundown and what we're going to keep our eyes and ears on this week. If not, that's absolutely okay too. If you got other things going on, we've kept you now for almost two hours. So you both have really after her road trip. <laughs> uh, you're more than welcome to move on. But thank you cool. guys so much. Absolutely. And Alex, if you are, are you ready? I'm ready. You're ready for the thing? All right, I you guys, we're going to do the thing. Let's do the darn thing. All right. All right, Alex, what do you got for us this week? What are we going to keep our eyes and ears on? All right. So we'll go to the big, uh, big map here eventually. Um, we're going to start off in Colorado because alphabetical order. Um, I think this is the same update from last week. There was a hearing held um, and uh there at one point was an amendment that allowed for an exemption for uh, adult only establishments uh, that would still be allowed to sell vapor products. Uh, but more powerful lobbies got involved here. And so the exemptions were uh, limited to, uh, I believe, hookah lounges. I think menthol might have even gotten a pass here. Don't quote me on that. Uh, you can, of course, go read the legislation for yourself. Uh, if an updated version is available on Colorado's website, which as far as I can tell, I didn't check it this morning. The last uh, update to the bill that you can read was on January, February, March 18th. I guess I do still have to count the months on my hands. Um, but uh, so this has been a, a heavily amended bill uh, and uh, it is still in the House. The next step for this is the House Appropriations Committee. Um, not clear on what uh, kind of testimony that committee will be taking, what will be relevant for their ears, um, but uh, it is still moving through the process. That is HB 1064. So if you are in Colorado, by all means, send a message to your lawmakers in advance of the next hearing um, and as many contacts as we can get with, uh, you know, encouraging lawmakers to oppose this, the better. Um, so uh, moving right along. Uh, Hawaii back in the spotlight this week. Um, this is relatively urgent. Uh, I know that we have uh, we've been keeping up with these bills in Hawaii. Uh, this is HB 1570. This is the one that is moving. Um, so uh, for those who are not familiar with the process in Hawaii, uh, or but who may live there, uh, there are like a bill has to go through like a dozen committees before it does anything. Uh, there are all kinds of hearings. Uh, I think this has definitely had a few. Uh, this is kind of an abbreviated look at the, 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 the history of the bill. Um, but most recently this week on uh, the 7th, uh, the Consumer Protection uh, Committee and the Ways and Means Committee both made decisions on this. They passed the bill unanimously. Uh, and so what we're sort of accustomed to in other states is that that would mean that this moves on to a, a vote by the full chamber. Uh, but what is actually happening here is that it's going to a conference committee. And so the window for submitting written testimony has closed. If you want to contact your lawmakers, if you want to make your voice heard, you got to write them. You got to write them. You got to make phone calls. There's no more opportunities to participate in a public hearing. Uh, and so uh, it's really important that people do take advantage of this, this engagement on our website. 
and we also have the look up your legislators box here at the bottom. So once you've sent your message, scroll back up, look at the talking points that we've provided as a guide to help uh, frame the comments that you might deliver on a phone call. But by all means, please make that phone call. Uh, your voice, your literal voice carries a lot more weight than one of our pre-written messages, of course, that we urge you to edit with your own personal story. Um, and so uh, I don't have a date uh, yet, but uh, we do have a general range here that, that at the end of April, uh, this conference committee will be making a decision one way or another about this. So you've got a couple weeks to get your voices heard in Hawaii, and I strongly urge people to take advantage of that and, and do so. Uh, that is HB 1570 in Hawaii. Uh, moving on to Rhode Island, some possibly good news. I don't want to oversell it one way or another because uh, what has happened in Rhode Island is actually kind of common. Uh, what There are four bills now in, in Rhode Island that is already living under a flavor ban by, by way of the health department rule. Uh, this, of course, would, would codify it. Uh, in state law. Um, these four bills received another hearing uh, and were held for further study. This means it could just kind of languish in a limbo here for a little while until uh, the session ends and nothing happens, or these bills could be called up at any time. So uh, if you are in Rhode Island, it is absolutely fair game to continue sharing your stories with lawmakers and urging them to oppose these bills. Uh, and if you want extra credit that I'm not going to hand out, but just that little bit of self-satisfaction from knowing that you went the extra mile, you can always encourage them to uh, repeal or take some action. Uh, I believe there was a bill in session last year um, that would have undone the health department's flavor ban that everyone in Rhode Island is currently living under. So um, that's the activity that we're covering um, and, oh, I'm sorry, these are four bills. I'm not going to read all of these bill numbers. If you live in Rhode Island, please check out our call to action. You get all the information that you need there. Um, and so, as I was about to say, that is the legislative rundown for this week. And all of you appreciate me keeping that short. In record time. <laughs> or at least it's close. I don't know. I, I don't keep track of the, the record times, but that was that was awfully quick, sir. That was awfully quick. And some, I don't know if quick is a good thing or a bad thing in these situations. I'll take the win. It's, yeah. it's a little bit yeah. of a win. A little bit of a win. At least some reprieve in, in some form or fashion. Yes, I see a lot, a lot of thank yous from everybody in chat. Thank, thank you guys. Thank you folks for tuning in, hanging out with us, uh, being here for this conversation. I saw a lot of discourse uh, over hookah in chat. And yeah, J Jim is correct. Hookah is a deemed tobacco product. Uh Shisha, which is a, a form of hookah tobacco, it's it is it's loose tobacco. It's very moist. It's often mixed with like fruits and spices and things like that. Uh, yes, and and yes, it, it does. At least to my knowledge, almost always and or always contain nicotine. I don't know as though I've ever heard of nicotine-free hookah or shisha. 
but yeah, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely a tobacco product for sure. So yes, thank you guys. Thank you everybody in chat. Uh, if you are not already a member of Casa, please leave right now and head over to Casa.org. Sign up. It's absolutely free. We won't spam you and fill your inbox with all sorts of unnecessary stuff, but you can get all the updates, all the calls to action, everything uh, you need to, to stay involved, to get involved. Uh, you can also head over to our merch shop. Danielle Jones will yell at me if I don't talk about it because she worked so hard and all of our merch is sweet. Go pick up your go pick up some sweet swag and uh, and you'll be a walking billboard for tobacco harm reduction. And it's a really cool, great way to support Casa as well. And you can also donate all the cool, all the cool things over at Casa.org. For podcast listeners, there will be two versions of this episode. You can listen to the full version wherever you listen to your podcast. There'll also be a real short, like just legislative rundown version of that, like four and a half seconds of legislation that Alex just ran through. It's going to be a little bit longer than that, but that was super quick, man. Um, I don't know. Is there anything I'm missing here? I don't think so. I think I got it. I think I did all the things. Nice. I think we I thanked got it. everybody. We told them where to go. We gave them the information. I mean, that's basically what Kassad does. We tell you where to have go. Next we week. give you the information. Who do we have next week? Who do we have next week, Kristen? We have Dr. Brad Radu coming on the show next week. <laughs> and for anybody <laughs> who missed it, we recently had Dr. Brad Radu on our Kassad Twitter space. If you're not familiar with that, follow us over on Twitter at Casa Media. Uh, every other Wednesday or so, we do a Casa Twitter space, which is kind of like a live audio only podcast uh, that you can tune into, listen to. Is that you can tune into them on PC, but you can't. Yeah, yeah you can listen to Twitter spaces on PC, but uh, there's no way to make you a speaker, which is fine because we have we have guests. Guest. Yeah, yeah. I, see, I've never done anything regarding Twitter spaces on PC. I almost never use Twitter on the Mac. Uh, it's almost always on my phone. But if you're on mobile, it's real easy. Uh, you can click the notifications for it when our tweets go out about it. So that way you get a nice little reminder of when we're going to be live, when you can tune in. Uh, that will be Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern for anybody who does want that heads up. I'm sure we'll have a tweet about it, announcing it soon. I don't know if we already have one um, out yet, but if if not, it'll be out and available on the Twitterverse soon. You can click that little reminder bell. And while you're here, if you're on YouTube, if you're on Facebook, wherever you are, take a minute and click that little thumbs up for us. Give us a like. It really does help. And share it. Share this with everybody you know. Share it with your friends. Share it with your dog. Send it to random emails and phone numbers. Blast it out everywhere. Share it across <laughs> share it across the internet. I know. Please don't just send it to random numbers or do. I can't condemn or condone it. So either way, that's going to do it for us this week. As far as I know, we will be back next Saturday. Yeah, with Dr. Yeah, Brad yeah. As long as, as long as the world doesn't fall apart and we can yeah. get Dr. Brad to, uh, to figure out his microphone, we will be back. <laughs> Sorry, Dr. Brad. Uh, we will be back next week, 4.30 p.m. Eastern, 1.30 over on the other coast, and you got to Google through it for anywhere in between. That's going to do it for us this week. Be excellent to each other, everyone. Stay safe out there. And that's it. 